Good morning. It is it is good to be in God's house together with you this morning. Um, Luke chapter 13. We're going to be in Luke chapter 13 this morning as we continue our series through the parables of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes uh, it, it you can you can sit through a lecture or you could you could read complicated material to learn stuff. Uh, but it's so much more interesting when it's in story form, isn't it? And oftentimes it's so much more enlightening when it's in story form. And so these parables of Jesus have been showing us pictures that that we can grasp and we can get a hold of that help us to understand a a, a deeper reality, a reality that goes beyond what we can sense and see. Last week, for example, we talked about the kingdom of heaven and Jesus used two different descriptions of it. He said that it's like a mustard seed. (coughs) Excuse me, the smallest of the known seeds of the time. The smallest seed that was cultivated was the mustard seed, and it grows up into this tree more than 10 feet high, and and it's so big that birds can nest in its branches. He talked about the kingdom of God being like leaven that you put into some flour, and you start to knead it, and you start to work it, and you hide it in, and, and working that dough, the yeast goes throughout the whole thing so that eventually, when you start to cook it, that yeast shapes the entire lump of dough. It grows the entire lump. And in the same way that the mustard seed, starting small, growing so big that it provides shelter, in the same kind of way the kingdom of God starts small, but those those who put themselves in it, who dwell within it, find shelter in their time of need. We also find, like leaven, that permeates the dough and that affects the entire dough, shaping the entire dough. So the kingdom of God, when it's put in you, affects every aspect of our lives. And on the heels of this, Luke says, you know, you know, I need to tell this story right before I tell the next story because they play off each other. Uh, we don't know the exact time frame between the two. We do know Jesus is traveling along. He gives that language of this is sometime a little bit later in his journey. But we find in Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 22, the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we find another parable that kind of goes along along those same lines of, of the kingdom of heaven. But this time, it takes a turn that we don't quite expect. Stand with me as we read from Luke 13. We're going to read verses 22 through 30 and talk about those verses this morning because I believe in this passage we find something remarkable about the kingdom that we often don't like to think about. We often don't like to put it in these terms. And the fact that Jesus gives it to us in these terms forces us to look at it in a different way. So so look with me. Luke chapter 13, beginning in verse 22. This is God's word, and if you let it, it will change your life. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. 
In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table of the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. Father, may we take heed of your warning and enter through the narrow door. Bless your word. Help us to hear it and to do it. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus is going around from place to place, village to village, town to town, teaching, doing miracles, you know, typical Jesus stuff. All the while, he's on a mission. In verse 22, Luke tells us that he is journeying toward Jerusalem. Back in chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus sets his eyes toward Jerusalem. And now, We see him as he's going, as he's teaching. He is on this journey. He is headed to a location, but he's also headed to a destiny. The journey for Jesus wasn't endless wandering or just being here or there or just happening along certain circumstances. He's not just, he's not like a boat just sitting on the waves, just getting pushed around wherever the waves happen to lead him. No, he is directly headed toward Jerusalem. And we all know what happens there. When he gets there, he's going to confront the evil of his day. When he gets there, he is going to drive out money changers because they're turning a house of prayer into a den of robbers. He's going to directly oppose religious leaders who think they know exactly what God wants and are missing the entire point. They're majoring on the minors and forgetting the most important details of what God has told them in the law. He's headed toward Jerusalem. He will be welcomed. Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And before the end of the week, they'll be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They'll be hung up on a cross that isn't there anymore, but it's still there in our hearts. The impact is still being made. He's headed, he's headed to die. And if that was the end, well, if that was all he was headed to do, well, then, then, then we're all pitiful. He's headed to die in order to rise. He sees that. And it's important to remember that everything that Jesus is doing, he is doing headed toward that destiny. He's not hiding from it. He's not shying from it. He's not running away from it. He's not aimlessly wandering around. And maybe maybe some point I'll find out what I'm supposed to be doing. No, he knows exactly where he's going and he is headed that way. We don't know where he is. We don't know when this is compared to his entry into Jerusalem. We don't know how long of a journey he has left to go. But that's not the point. The point is he knows he's headed there and he's journeying toward Jerusalem. All as we see him journeying along his way, he gets an opportunity. And we just talked about a minute ago what Jesus had just talked about. The kingdom of heaven being like the mustard seed and the leaven. I, I have a feeling he taught this more than once. I have a feeling that he taught this several times, that he went around using some of these same examples over and over again. The gospel writers don't give it to us multiple times usually. Sometimes they do. This one is one of those things that Matthew gives us and Luke gives us. But I have a feeling he taught this on multiple occasions in multiple towns and villages. And on one particular occasion, maybe someone heard him and began to see another analogy possibly at play. You see, the mustard seed is small. Yeast starts out real small, right? Y'all ever seen yeast? You ever see dry yeast? You ever see, 
Have you ever seen non-dry yeast? The, 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 you, it doesn't take much, does it? It doesn't take much at all. Maybe, just maybe, the kingdom of heaven is really, really tiny. Like it's not open to a lot of people. Maybe God's kingdom is just really small. This guy's mind starts thinking, well, you know, mustard seeds are small, the leaven, it doesn't take very much. Maybe the kingdom of heaven is only open to a select few. And so he asked him, look at verse 23, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Will those who are saved be few? This was, this was a, uh, maybe, maybe he's concerned. Am I going to make the cut? You know, some, some, uh, some things, some cults and some different groups teach that only a few, there's a, there's a certain limited number, and once it hits that number, that's it, there's no more. There are only limited spots available. you got to call now to make your reservation kind of thing, you know? Only the very best. Only the top ones. And for some reason, this doesn't seem to bother some of them. I've, I've talked to a couple of them, and, and they've mentioned this, this idea that only 144,000, for example, is, is what one group teaches. And I asked them, I said, doesn't that concern you that you may not make the cut? And they said, well, I'm probably not going to make the cut. Then why are you doing this? <laughs> What's the point? Maybe, maybe it's maybe I won't make the cut. Maybe this guy is concerned because he may not be good enough. If heaven is only open to few people, maybe I may not make it. Maybe I won't be good enough, and I'll be left out. That's that's a that's a legitimate concern for some folks. Maybe, <laughs> maybe he's exactly the opposite. Maybe he's overconfident. <laughs> yep, only a few get in. And I'm definitely one of them. Because I see that too. I see that error where, where somebody says, well, you know, God doesn't just open up his kingdom to anybody. And I know I got in. I don't have anything to worry about. I'm definitely good enough. I don't know. We don't know his motive. But we do know this was an ongoing discussion. In fact, um, it's not Bible. Okay? Don't hear me quote this as Bible. This is not Bible. But there is a book in the Apocrypha that's sometimes called Fourth Ezra. They put uh, Ezra and Nehemiah as being the first two books of Ezra, and then then two more books of Ezra. Sometimes it's called Second Esdras. Uh, I don't know, um, I don't know which one to call it for y'all, but it, it's either one. There's a passage in there where God supposedly is talking to Ezra, and He says, "The Most High made this world for the sake of many." but the world to come for only the sake of a few. He goes on to talk about the fact that there's a whole lot of clay, but there's not much gold. And the idea being that some are like the clay. They're, they're plentiful. God, they're, they have a place in this world, but that's it. They don't have a place in God's kingdom, but, but there's a very, very few pieces of gold out there. The good ones, they're the ones that are going to get into heaven. Many have been created, he goes on to say, but only a few shall be saved. That selectivity, there was an ongoing discussion in the period about just how open is the kingdom of heaven. And this guy, whether he's concerned that he may not make it, maybe maybe he's he's uh, a, a little bit too proud of himself, thinking he's definitely making it, not very many are. Whatever the case is, wherever, wherever his mindset is, he says, well, are there just going to be a few who are saved? You know, often Jews thought, well, there's no hope for Gentiles. Maybe, maybe for one or two good ones, you know, like Ruth type, that like leave everything and they, they come to follow God and they show faithfulness uh, to, to, to the Jewish nation. And, you know, folks like that, maybe. 
Maybe Rahab because she was in Jericho. She hid the spies. She put faith in God. It was obvious that, that, that God was working through her so she can, she can get in. Maybe there's one or two others that are just so faithful to God such faithful servants of God, even though they're not Jews, even though they're outside of the covenant community, maybe there's a few of them that'll get in. But by and large, for the most part, it's just going to be Jews and it's just going to be faithful ones. Man, you've got to be a Jew or you don't have much of a chance. That was the common teaching. That was what they expected. So imagine when Jesus takes this hypothetical generic query and turns it into a personal soul searching. This is how surprised they are. Imagine how life-shattering it is to hear a parable of a narrow door and to realize (laughs) who you think is getting in may not. Look at verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, we as Baptists, we're very careful. We, We talk about salvation. We are very careful to make sure that you don't get the impression that you are earning it. And, and for good reason, right? Ephesians 2 says it's by grace, through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Of course, right after that, we, we, we leave off verse 10 that says we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. We forget that verse. <laughs> but we stress the fact that you are not saved by your works, and you're not saved by your works. That's very true. But notice what Jesus says. Look back at verse 24 and look at the first word. Strive. What, what is some of your Bibles? That those of you who don't have an ESV, I'm preaching out of an ESV. What, some of you, what, what, what is your first word? Any other first words other than strive? Make. I'm sorry? Make. Make. Make what? Um, make every effort. Okay. Any others? Strive. That, that word's difficult, isn't it? Striving's pretty difficult, isn't it? It gives the picture of a goal that cannot be reached without strenuous effort. It, it's the virtuous hero fighting against evil enemies and finally winning the victory. It's the picture of a faithful martyr, oppressed and opposed, even to the point of death, but remaining true to his faith. In fact, it's the kind of effort that requires everything. One, one scholar wrote it this way. The struggle for the kingdom of heaven allows no indolence, indecision, or relaxation. Only those who press into it attain entrance. Now, Jesus says strive to enter. He doesn't say enter. He doesn't say knock on the door and ask to come in. He says strive to enter because many will seek and will not be able. Do you notice the difference in tenses? He doesn't say start striving. He doesn't say eventually you need to start striving. Eventually you need to get to the point. It's not a future thing. It's a present tense. Strive. Strive now. Don't strive later. Don't wait because you're going to wait and then it's going to be too late because many will seek in the future but not be able to get in. Strive to enter now. Strive today. Otherwise, your striving will be no avail. There's an expiration date on this offer of salvation from Christ. It does expire. There is a point where God no longer extends the offer just like a coupon has an expiration date and you can't use it after that date. Just like your milk has an expiration date and you don't want to use it after that date. So this offer of Christ has an expiration date. Now, now it's not stamped on there. Jesus doesn't say, 
All right, this offer ends on June 30th. You better take it now. But it is a limited time offer. Quoting from Isaiah 49, Paul told the Corinthians, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Today is the day of salvation. It's not tomorrow. It's not in the future. You don't come seeking for it when you're ready. It's now. Now. Strive today. Put the effort in today. That's one reason the door is so narrow. It's limited. It's not a wide door for numerous throngs to enter at any time. It's not propped open. It's only open for a little while. It's a narrow door. A door that must be entered too sweet. A door that must be entered immediately. It's not a door to lollygag outside of, but a door to squeeze into now. Now! It's a narrow door. That means you can't bring in baggage. That baggage of anger that you've been holding against somebody. That baggage of hatred that prevents you from being able to love someone else. You can't hold on to that. That baggage is too big to fit in the door. There's not enough room. You can't fit in with your way of doing things. You can't fit in with the necessities that you think you need but really don't. There's not enough room. It's a narrow door. It's a door that requires that you take everything else away, that you put it all behind you and leave it all outside in order to squeeze through. It's a narrow door. It's a narrow door that takes great care and effort to get into. It means you can't flippantly enter. You can't stumble in, accidentally find yourself in God's kingdom. That's not how it works. No, you've got to actually be trying to get in. People don't enter through the narrow door by accident. It's a struggle, and it's supposed to be. The door is a narrow door. Y'all ever have an old house? Anybody have a real old house? Okay, how old is your house? About how many years? Over 100 years. So you have massively wide doors, right? There was this period a long time ago where, where, where the doors were a little different than now. Anybody have a house with like really narrow doors? Like you feel like, you feel like every time you try to walk through a certain door, maybe it's a closet or maybe it's a, maybe, maybe it's like a bathroom door or something, you feel like you need to turn sideways to kind of scoot through because it's so narrow. Anybody have a door like that in their house? I kind of think of that except my picture is more like a crawl space door. It's not even a door. It's just like a piece of wood that's screwed on. And you have to unscrew it and then squeeze yourself in there to get in. Anybody have one of those? No? My goodness, you people. Y'all just live in luxury with all these massive doors everywhere. That's the picture I get. I get the picture of a little crawl space that takes strenuous effort just to get in and out of. It's a narrow door. And yet for a while, the door stands open. It won't stay open forever. Verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside. That's interesting. Something I hadn't really noticed before. It just kind of hit me. They weren't trying to get in until after the door was shut. That's the language here. That, that begin to stand outside. They start congregating. Suddenly the door is shut. Nobody cares while the door is open. Nobody wants to come close to God when he gives the chance freely, but then when he shuts the door, suddenly there's massive throngs on the outside saying, let us in, let us in. Lord, open to us. And what's his answer? I do not know where you are from. Some of your versions have, I do not know you or where you are from. Kind of breaks it up. This is something incredible. 
almost every parable that Jesus gives about people, it is somebody else. He uses him, her, they, them. It's other people, not here. In this case, he says you. When the master of the house gets up and closes the door and you begin to stand outside and you say, Lord, open to us, he will say to you, I do not know you. I do not know where you are from. Do you hear that second person? He is talking to his audience. He's not saying this is some other person. He's saying, no, you're the ones that are going to be left outside. This is what's so remarkable about this poem, about this this, uh, parable, excuse me. What's so remarkable is that Christ is pointing the finger directly at them. Normally he doesn't do that. Normally he says it in third person and lets them gather that they're the ones he means. This time he points it straight at them. He says, you are to blame. You are the ones left outside. For this audience, there would have been two things that they would expect would guarantee them entrance into the kingdom of heaven. One would be their Jewish heritage. The other would be their acquaintance with Jesus. By their own Jewish heritage, some would expect to enter his kingdom. I mean, after all, God himself calls the Jews his people. Jacob, I have loved. He's not just talking about Jacob. He's talking about the descendants of Jacob too. I mean, this is his people. This is his place. This is the place that bears his name. They are in the city that bears his name. With the temple that bears his name. This is the place. If there's any place on earth that God would call his, uniquely and completely his, it would be Jerusalem. It would be Israel. It would be that place. And even in that place, he says, nope. I don't know where you're from. What do you mean you don't know where we're from? We're children of Abraham. We're God's people. We've been faithful. We read the Torah. We, we go to synagogue every week. We do the things that God has told us to do. We check all the check boxes. We have all the feasts. We eat the Passover meal. We do everything that God expects of us to do. What do you mean we can't come? What do you mean we don't know where we're from? Of course you do. We're your brothers and sisters. Your aunts and uncles, your nieces and your nephews, your cousins, your grandparents, your parents. What do you mean you don't know where we're from? The very source of much of the pride and expectation of salvation among the Jews comes in their ethnicity. They're God's people chosen by God through their father Abraham and now the children of Abraham are left outside of the house where Abraham's table will sit and hold the feast. We find out in verse 29, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the prophets, they all get in. Not this people. But some Jews thought with their inherited right to the kingdom of God failed them. Their origin, their ethnicity, their heritage made absolutely no difference. Maybe you've heard the saying, God doesn't have any grandchildren. I know. It's cliche. It's, it's old hat. But it's still true. You cannot inherit your way into God's kingdom. You can, you can get, you can try, but you, you can't just get a free ride because your mama or your daddy or your grandmama knows God. Your aunts or uncles, doesn't matter. You must personally put your faith in Jesus Christ. Period. Otherwise, you're going to be locked out of the house. Well, he rejects them, so they begin to make excuses. They begin to say, what, what do you mean you don't know where we're from? Look at verse 26. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank 
in your presence and you taught in our streets. But Lord, they object. We know you. We've eaten with you. We've reclined with you. We've played games together. We're buddies. We've done all kinds of great things. They thought their, inher- their acquaintance with Jesus was enough, but it wasn't. You see, I, I, I know you. I've spent time with you. I've, I, I, I've read my Bible and I prayed. Maybe not as much as I should, but I've still done it. I mean, I've tried to be good. That's not enough. Verse 27, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. You see, there is this theme in Scripture. God knows his children. He spoke through the prophet Nahum, Nahum 1.7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. God, speaking through Paul to his young mentee, Timothy, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. There it is. There it is. There's the reason they were rejected. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. You see, the reason he didn't know where they were from, actually, he did know where they were from. They just weren't from him. He told the Pharisees once, you're of your father, the devil. You see, he knew exactly where they were from. They just didn't belong in his house. The reason they're rejected is because they didn't come by grace through faith. They came by heritage through acquaintance. And that's not good enough for salvation. They did what was evil. Even after they heard even after they watched Jesus, even after they knew what he was calling of them, and for that reason, they were being left out of God's kingdom. And those results aren't pretty, folks. Verse 28, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We often stress that about hell. Notice why there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the very ones that they were putting their trust in, the prophets that they were supposed to be listening to, claim to be listening to, and yet did not because they were doing evil. The ones that they claimed were supposed to be the ones guiding them, but were not because they were following after Satan instead of God. See, those, they're getting in. When you see them and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, you're looking in the windows and there they are, but you can't get in because you're locked out. And not only that, and people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. You see, God isn't just interested in one people group. He's interested in all peoples. And so to to get this tunnel vision and to think, God only cares about me because of my heritage, that's bogus. To think that I please God because I have a certain lineage. It's poppycock. That's not scripture. I don't care what your mama said. There is no way to the Father but through the Son. And just being the right heritage, just having the acquaintance, just going through the motions and acting the part, but not being changed by the gospel in your heart is not enough for salvation. God has to do the work in you. You must be born again. While the nations are flocking to God's kingdom, the very people who are the sons of Abraham, the people that were supposed to be God's people, were left out because of their iniquities. See, the kingdom is very different from this world. In this world, we care about lineage. 
in this world, we care about who you know. Your networks, business people will call them. See, in the kingdom of heaven, some who are last will be first because they humbled themselves, because they brought themselves under the mercy of God and said, God, I am a sinner. You want to know how to squeeze through the narrow door? Confess your sin to him. Oh, man, it's not easy to look at that. It's not easy to look at how terrible you are. It's not easy for me to look at how terrible I am. That's a struggle. But when you admit, when you confess to God, I am a sinner. I have broken your laws. I am against you. I have, I have, I have turned away from you. And when you repent of your sin, when you say, God, I don't want to do that anymore because it doesn't please you. I'm, I'm turning away from my sin and I'm turning to you and I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting in you to make me right. I'm trusting in you to bring me salvation. I'm trusting in you to save me from my sins and to put those things away from me and, and to help me be the kind of person that you created me to be. When you turn to him, that's how you squeeze through the narrow door. Because at that point, you are stripping off everything else that, that does not matter, that holds you back, that keeps you from fitting in the door. And you are dealing directly with God himself. That's how you squeeze through the door. And it's a struggle. It's also a struggle not to want to run back outside and grab a few things. But the door's not big enough for that. It's only big enough for you. You childlike faith and your trust in Christ. That's, that's all that will fit in that door. So I guess it's time to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, have we given up everything to enter through the narrow door? Have we thrown it all aside? Or are we still trying to smuggle stuff in? Are we still lollygagging on the outside like we got plenty of time? I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to have a verse of invitation hymn, and I'm going to ask you, just whatever God's putting on your heart to do, you do. If it's throwing down everything and entering through the narrow door, I'd love to help you do that. I'll be up here at the front. If it's not, if it's journey, joining a church that can help you in your journey, can help you live out this Christian life, we'd love to have you here. I'll be glad to share with you how you can do that. Whatever God's calling you to do, you do it after we pray this prayer. Pray with me. Father, this is your time. This is your word. You have, you have blessed it just by speaking it. You have blessed it just by saying it. You have blessed it in its writing. You have blessed it in its preservation through the ages. And now you are blessing it as we hear it and as we seek to apply it to our lives. Father, I pray that we would enter through the narrow door. That we would throw everything aside that holds us back. Everything aside that makes us too big to fit through. And God, we would come to you in simple, obedient faith. I pray that we would enter through the narrow door. That we would strive. That we would struggle. That we would not be indifferent, but be fully devoted to you. Father, I pray that we would bring you glory. So Lord, in this invitation, you lead you put on people's hearts what they need to do, and we'll respond with obedience. In Christ's name we pray.